The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, we're in Australia hunting truffles and talking about the different personalities of the dogs who find those truffles. To put it into an American analogy, Gigi is probably what New York Max is to California. <laughs> if Max was to wear a scent, it would probably be patchouli oil. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. I think so. I got, I, you know, the needle is in the bottle. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to... <laughs> hey, welcome to the winemakers. Am I the only person in the world who Coravins Rosé? Is that what's happening right now? Yes, you know, I'm you know what's interesting, Sam? Because of our conversation yesterday, I was looking up what some of the most expensive rosés in the world are, and Gerard Bertrand has one that is, I think, retails at one ninety. Yeah. But I couldn't find scores on it. I'm hoping they got a 93 for 190 <laughs> bucks a bottle. <laughs> anyway, we got Artie Johnson on the show today. Sam, I'm going to let you do an introduction. Okay, well, I know Artie um, from the Mayakamas days. Uh, when when Mayakamas was – when Bob Travers, you know, who had owned Mayakamas for 50 years – sold the property one of the people that the new owners brought in I, I think you were the head of sales you were you were the, the sales guy um, something like that yeah something like that um but you know Artie and Artie comes from the the Miami wine world um and and you know is uh the hot shot of of the Napa cab game basically these days um but more interestingly what you know what already started doing that inspired a lot of 16600 and there's you know kind of a lot of crossover um he put out this wine brand that i i never pronounced correctly um like artahasic um <laughs> problem is i have braden and ben pickerings in my head like every time i try and say it so that doesn't that doesn't help it. Uh, and the initial rollout of, of Artie's wine brand was like a half a dozen single vineyard different varietal rosés in this, you know, awesome packaging with this amazing label. And, um, but, and then you, you couldn't find it anywhere because he is notoriously reclusive. I think you learned that at my comments, uh, how, how to be a reclusive winery. How to um, hide up so on the hill. How, how did I do on that intro? I didn't actually do, I'm not like Brian. I didn't do any prep work. So how did, how did I do Artie? You, you did well, you did well. So, you know, the brand is L'Artichassic, which is a combination of uh, my children and my wife's name. So Artie, the third, is my son. He's three years old. My wife is Shannon, Shannon Staglin. And then my daughter is Cicely. She's four years old. So Look Artishasik is the brand. And also, you gave me way too much credit for how many wines that I, I made. I actually uh, make three rosés, and I think you said six, 
because I don't have much well, hair left. I bought two bottles of each. Maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah, if, if I get up to six, I wouldn't have any hair. All my hair would fall out. So, <laughs> and the pronunciation, you know, I'm an old kind of marketing guy from from college days, and if you don't uh, make I, your marketing, I couldn't tell from the from the name of the brand. <laughs> if you don't make your marketing confusing, then you're not marketing. So hopefully the name is hard to pronounce and really confusing. <laughs> Again, I think that's a similarity that we have uh, already in our in our wine brands. Nobody yeah. has ever said sixteen six hundred correctly, but as long as they're saying it, it doesn't matter right. how they're saying it. Right? Yeah, and if it's if it's hard to say, they keep saying it over and over again, which is great marketing too. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. for those scoring at home, if you want to. Go on your Instagram right now and go to at wine XYZ and you can check out um, some of the labels and some photos and stuff while you're while you're listening to the show. And what is you guys were talking about, Sam, you're saying he's from the Miami wine scene. I think of like mojitos or something when I think of Miami. <laughs> I don't think of wine. So what is the Miami wine scene? I, I think I should do a quick flyover. Um, yeah, let's do the flyover. How did you, you know, where did, you know, because you were... College. So, yeah. Go start from the beginning. So I'm I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm I go back to five generations in Houston, and I grew up there. And eventually went to the University of Texas to play baseball. And like most college athletes at that level, you you assume that you're going to play professional sports, but you don't really realize the statistic is probably less than five percent. So once I fell into that very generous statistic. I needed to get a job. So I started working at bars on 6th Street. And then after having way too much fun, realized that I need to keep it moving. Then went to work at restaurants on 4th Street and realized that I knew nothing about wine and got some mentors and got interested in wine and noticed that there was a cool culture behind it. People really enjoying themselves. And then then I decided to take off to New York City because everyone was telling me if I wanted to be in the restaurant business, that's where the great restaurants are and moved up there with my bags. The first time I ever saw New York City was when I moved there. I'd never visited. Wow. So this, this kid from this kid from Houston, Texas, living in Austin as, as a college athlete, moves to New York. I uh, got a subway card and 100 resumes on that nice paper, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and went around. Um, at the time, I had dreadlocks to my waist, but that's another story. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, went around and, and looked for a job and eventually got hired at Nobu and Tribeca. Jeez, uh, wait, that, wait a minute. How, how do you get hired out of the gate at those places? Well, you know, the part that I probably skipped over was in Austin. I worked at a restaurant called Kenichi. And uh, Kenichi is a sushi restaurant that also has a sister restaurant in Aspen. So I was getting this Japanese experience in Austin, and that really translated when I went to New York City. And I was one of the only non-Japanese uh, employees uh, at that time. Uh, so that was kind of very exciting. But they liked the fact that I had the Japanese background, so it was a little bit plug and play. I did learn a lot about service and you know, dealing with high net worth individuals and, you know, New Yorkers are very particular. So that I had to get up to speed on that. But in terms of the, the culture and the food, I had an end there and um, stayed there for a little over a year, then moved down to Miami 
Miami was growing at the time. You know, there was no Fountain Blue. There was no W. There was no um, Faina, any of the cool, the cool kid spots now. Basically, just Delano and Shore Club were the spots. And went around, needed a job, needed someone to take a flyer on me in terms of my first wine director position. And I got it at uh, the Risachi Mansion, which at the time was called Casa Casarina. And, uh, Wait, did you German... say, did you say Versace? Yeah. So, um, Casa Casarina was a project inside of the Versace mansions. So there was an old German chef there named Wolfgang Burke and, uh, Chef Burke gave me my first opportunity to run the wine program. Uh, his assistant at the time was Nina Compton, who has since won a James Beard award for the South. Um, at her restaurant, Compare Le Pen. So we were all just kind of doing our thing there. It was a hotel. Uh, so they turned the rooms in the mansion into a hotel. And uh, they, they also, um, we had weddings there. We had a Davidoff lounge with every cigar that Davidoff's ever made. So I was the beverage and wine director for the property. And uh, that was kind of my first shot. Wow. And, and how old are you at this time? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'd have to count backwards. I was probably around a little over 30 at that time, you know, okay. 30, early 30s, yeah. And Miami at that time, too, was, uh, it, you know, I, I really like what you said about the mojitos because uh, <laughs> Miami is a cocktail town, but at the end of yeah. the day, you know, you have to realize that clients are coming in from all over the world. So going to nice dinners and having wine is, is part of, of that vacation experience. So it's kind of like cocktails during the day, take a nap and then uh, go to dinner and have wine at night. And do they like to drink California or are they more into the French thing? Yeah, you know, I think it's a pretty balanced market. I think whereas New York City is very Eurocentric, I think Miami, because you have, you think about it, South America, uh, Europe, um, you know, uh, Middle America, all coming to the same spot, it's pretty eclectic. And also, the major difference between working in Miami and New York City is pretty much everyone's on vacation in Miami. So they're pretty open-minded, they're relaxed, they're enjoying themselves. New York, you know, you might, you might be taking care of someone that lost five or 10 million at, at lunchtime. Uh, so it's a different mindset. And I think that makes the market and the people in the market a little bit more open-minded. So whatever you feel like selling that day, as long as it's got great quality, you have a good chance of putting it on the table. And how many wines are on that list when you first started? You know, it was pretty small because uh, that property was purchased by a gentleman named Peter Lofton, who at the time was pretty close to being a billionaire. So he took on this project. He bought the mansion from, uh, from Donatella uh, herself. So the concept was to do a private club. And, uh, you know, there wasn't an existing business there before that was really thriving so I had to build that list and uh, you know it's great because you make some you make some mistakes you know one of my buddies took over uh, the list for me when I moved on he said uh, hey man like what's up with all the South American wives I was like oh yeah I was just doing a favor for a buddy <laughs> yeah. so you, you learn you learn over time that you know building a wine list is very challenging so all of those folks that are out there doing that man i i applaud them and take my hat off to them because you really you really are running a business you know and 
you know, the, the business has to make money because we all know that that's one of the main revenue streams of a hotel or a restaurant. And, uh, and you have to really take it seriously. So I think I grew in that position. Hopefully I did a great job, but I'd have to ask Chef Burke and Nina if I actually did a great job. And, and or the guy who took your job after you left, who had to sell all that South Africa, that South American. Yeah, well, I also inherited part of me some things that were not as desirable. I think that's part of taking over a wine program, right? I think the one thing you don't want to inherit is a is a bunch of like Montrachet, you know, like <laughs> $2,000, $3,000 bottles of Chardonnay. Those are hard to move. They just sit on your books. Yep. Yeah, I got over 500 wines on my list currently. And it, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of DRC stuff, but a lot of like 2012 Aubert Chardonnay, which I'm starting <laughs> to wonder at this point, what the hell I'm going to do with. It sounds like you have a, a, a BTG in your future. Um, yeah, yeah, Coravin BTG. Coravin. <laughs> I'm so old, there was no Coravin. Once you pull that cork, you had to make it happen. Yeah. Well, and right now, it's a, a lot of what we're pouring, I mean, we're basically doing a, a BTG list because we're just serving out at the food truck and then out at the, uh, out at the water tower bar. So it's basically, you know, cabana wines. Right. So not a lot of um, expensive cabs or anything being sold. It's a lot of uh, $16 a glass and under stuff that people are coming into right now, which, you know, is part of the culture right now. What it, what it yes. like Vogel Chardonnay is, is like the top selling wine in, in grocery stores right now. So it's a different yeah, world. We're, we're in a special time for sure. Yeah. All right. So you're in, you're in Miami and then how do you eventually make your way out to California? You know, I moved around a little bit in Miami, you know, because projects are opening and, you know, you want to get some good experience. So I got to work with um, Casa Tua and Prime 112 and also the River Oyster Bar. So I had a pretty eclectic career there in terms of bouncing back in beverage. I don't, I don't know that I'm a great or ever was a great beverage director. I think I'm a better wine director. I think spirits, you know, that the way spirits has grown you really need to concentrate on that i love wine and i i concentrated on that most of my career um but i, I think I, I felt like at some point i didn't want to own a restaurant i also didn't want to spend every night weekend holiday uh in a restaurant i needed to pivot my career and i didn't even have a plan really i met uh my my wife uh on a trip where she came out to basically sell Staglin wine. And, uh, you know, I went to a luncheon and met her and, you know, Shannon is, is, is just very smart and fun and nice and driven and all those things. And, you know, once we started to date long distance, she said, you know, you, you got to move out here. I'm not going anywhere. We've, we've got this family project over here. We've been working on for a long time. And I said, well, you know, let me think about it. And then literally probably a couple months later, I was gone. I, I left. I, I moved to Napa. And, and you kind of brushed over, but we're talking about Staglin, Staglin. This is like, <laughs> this is the, the winery over in Napa, right? This is, how, how yes. did you guys meet? Well, you know, it, it's traditional for producers to go into different markets to sell their wines. And, and I had, I had put in a lot of work in Miami to the point where if, you know, great producers came into the market 
I had a pretty good in on attending tastings or luncheons or dinners, or whatever. Um, I just kind of felt like that became part of my contribution to to show up, to be respectful, to you know, taste the wines, to support the program and that type of thing. So we met, you know, as I was the sommelier who was invited to a luncheon and she was showing her family's wines. And and once she took off, we kept in touch and then she came back again. And that's what I think it was more of us starting to think about dating. But the bi-coastal thing, you know, at a certain point, I was coming to Napa quite often. She was coming to Miami and, uh, you know, SFO to my, uh, MIA is, is, takes a lot of time and energy. So we had a conversation about it. You know, I think I was a little burnt out in my restaurant career. I didn't really understand what I was going to do in Napa, but I knew I was getting closer to probably where I needed to be professionally for the evolution. And, uh, and fortunately, and I say that a lot, fortunately, because sometimes when I look at my own bio, I realize how lucky and fortunate I've been, uh, and that's why I'm so grateful. I was hired by Harlan Estate when uh, when I moved to to Napa. Another uh, another pretty good producer of uh, wines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great or great organization, man. Uh, yeah. Top notch, first class. You look at the talent in the organization. It really kind of introduced me immediately to the high stakes uh, Napa Cabernet. Uh, you know, uh, project, uh, yeah. you know, resources weren't an issue, right. But you had to succeed. That's my interpretation of the organization, you know, whether it was winemaking or sales or whatever it is, the organization is going to provide you with all the resources you need, but they're also going to expect you to succeed and to quickly succeed. So <clears throat> that just the professionalism over there, the attention to detail, yeah. uh, their will, their willingness to put forth, mass amounts of resources for quality is something that I think people misinterpret about that project. And I should mention that we got, um, we have a guest on the program. It looks like uh, Phil Katuri has just sat down and joined us on well, the show. I, I had to say hi to Artie. Hey, Phil. <laughs> How are you, man? Phil Katuri, I'm good. It's great to see you, my friend. Good to see you. I'll, I'll be seeing you more often as we get closer to harvest there. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I leave that in your hands, man. I know you know what's going on. Well, I, I, I try to, but you know, you have to make the ultimate decision. Can I tell a quick story about Phil while you're here? <laughs> do I, do, should I leave the room? <laughs> so, when I, you know, when I first started making wine, you know, it's kind of hard to go around and ask some of the top growers for, for fruit. And I remember I said, Braden, connect me with Phil, Braden Albrecht at the time, and still is the winemaker at my economist. I said, Phil, you know, connect me with Phil, man. I need some Syrah. He's the Syrah whisperer. So we meet out at the vineyard, and Phil walks out, Braden walks out, and it, Phil looks me right in the eye and says, so how many tons you looking at? <laughs> and this is the question that I was avoiding the whole time, and I finally said, two and Phil looked, <laughs> Phil looked right at me he looked right at me and he just walked off and he said I'm out of here <laughs> but he turned around he turned around and came back and said hey man 
whatever you need. And I appreciate that moment because I was terrified. I thought he was really taking off. But <laughs> he was that was at a Bart Park. Yeah. Bart Park. Yes. That was at yeah. Bart Park, man. So, Phil, I appreciate that was, you. Uh, this right here. Yeah. That's why I chose that. Because you're. Yeah. Yeah. The Katuris are there. Yeah. I want to go to the But everything good, Artie? Everything is good, Phil. We're healthy over here. Um, you know, we're working on our businesses. Beyond that, I can't ask for anything more right now. Good, good. How about you, my yeah. friend? But yeah, you, you know, it, it's uh, in this year of COVID, the, the vintage is shaping up to be spectacular. Yes. You know, the berry size is small. Uh, I thought it'd be a, 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 late, a late vintage, uh, but with the heat that we had in the springtime, uh, the, and I mean, these last two, three weeks, we, you know, it's foggy in the morning, and yeah. 90, 90 degrees in the afternoon, foggy in the morning, 90 degrees in the afternoon. I've never seen abrasion. Well, I can't remember, but I'm sure I've seen it before, but I can't, I've never seen it go so quickly. Like it's yes. just like, it's, it's like, it's a pyramid, it's just boom, it's just taking off. Right. And, uh, you know, I might be picking some fruit later on this week. You know, wow. And tastes tastes some Sauv Blanc that that. Uh, I mean, even the calves and and are experiencing flavor at this point. You know? Wow. And just at at eighty percent operations. So and we're doing green drops all over. So, do you think that will lead to a faster sugar accumulation, or do you think it will balance out at the end? You know, I think it'll balance out at the end. I think we're still, I, I'm looking at this vintage time-wise, like similar to 2016, which was an early vintage. Okay. Um, you know, we, we, we will uh, um, be, you know, in, in the middle of it, you know, right, 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 right around uh, the equinox, you know. Yes. The third week of September. Wow. And it's coming, right? It's, it's right around. It's coming. It, 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 you know, today's the eighth or ninth, whatever. Seventh. Yeah. The seventh. Oh. Well, the podcast comes out next Friday. Okay. Uh, whatever, whatever date the podcast comes out, it'll be even closer to the end. <laughs> closer to <laughs> when, when we're going to pack. If the podcast comes out in January, we might not be talking about uh, right? <laughs> right, January. We're doing, we're doing our ice wine. <laughs> Phil, how's that Syrah tasting? Oh, this really, it, it smells. It smells beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. That was a special time working together, and I'm excited about working together again this year. And what are you guys doing? Are you you're getting the the same Syrah from Phil this year? Well, a different site. So that, he, he, he was uh, he got the last vintage that when uh, my company worked at at Bark Park after 20 years when, mm -hmm. when um, they decided to make a change, and I was really surprised that they you know. It's the, the politics of, of grape growing and winemaking. But uh, uh, this year he's getting uh, fruit from Rossi. Nice. Uh, and and uh, is your plan to do the still wine out of it? Or are you going to uh, rosé? No, no, it's, it's Syrah. Like I, rosé, <laughs> yeah, rosé has been, has been, you know, Rosé is Shake Ridge Vineyard, so that's a GSM, single vineyard wine. 
And then I have a, a wine that I call the San Tropez blend, which is Grenache, Syrah, Morved, Alicante, and Tempranillo. So I used to have mm. three skews three of rosé, but I've actually taken them down to two. So the San Tropez is more of the barrel selection and all of the varieties that I work with for rosé. And then the, uh, the Shake Ridge is the single vineyard rosé. And all other Syrah I work with um, go into what I call the winemaker small lot blend. So mm. I take sites from all over California, and now I'm actually up to 12 sites of Syrah that will go into one bottle of wine. Wow. Wow, cool, cool. Yeah. It's a logistical nightmare, <laughs> well, but it's a great project. Gives you something to think about, you know. You have to figure out what layer you're gonna have each, each vineyard, you know. Does it be at the bottom of the bottle or the middle of the bottle? Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because so already everything's getting, you're talking about 12 different sites. Everything's getting picked at different times. You're going to ferment yes. it all separately and then and then do a, are you just throwing everything together or are you going to come up with some kind of blend and have a little leftover? No, I think it's more about, um, I think the challenge that I have in, in a year kind of like this is you, you could be picking whites and reds simultaneously. Um, and then even Shake Rich comes in a little bit late for me. Um, normally, I pick Lagier Meredith Syrah in Mount Veter around the same week that I pick uh, GSM in the Sierra Foothills for Rosé. So logistically, if I'm going to have 12 sites that are going to go into one bottle, sometimes I think about bringing them in together, and then sometimes I grab them separately because they need to move. So... I have to be very open-minded about the picks. And that's why when I work with great growers like Phil, I really kind of lean on them in terms of what they're seeing. I, I personally don't, I mean, it's not right or wrong, but I don't like to micromanage my growers. It's just not, that's not my skill set. It's not what I do. They're out there all the time. So it's more about the collaboration of understanding what they're seeing. And then over time, they understand the types of wines that I like to make. So we really collaborate on these picking decisions, but going into the vineyard and standing over their shoulder and micromanaging them, I think if, if you don't have to do that if you work with the best growers. I think if you're yeah. doing a lot of that, it probably means that you're not at a level of talent that you need to be in terms of having growers in a project like this anyway. Yeah, and trust, yeah. Yeah, well, hey, it, you know, it, is, it, is a, it is a collaboration. And, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about wine philosophies over, over the years. For sure. And I, and I do know what the style that you're going, going to. I mean, that's the beauty of what, what I love, what I do, is the times that when that ultimate decision is going to be made, we do a walkthrough and we talk yes. about it. And, yes. and you tend to talk about everything and integrates, and then at the very end, you discuss what we're seeing that's going to happen. But you know, vision, you know, knowing knowing your wines, and by the way, that seventeen part park as well is, is nice. The tannins are are, are, are very nicely resolved. Um, Thank you. But it's it's you now I'm looking forward to walking Rossi with you because I think it's a it's a it's a spectacular sight. Absolutely, Phil. And, and I remember and, also you on that Bart Park pick. I remember when I came to you, I said, Phil, I think I'm ready to go. And, and the cool thing was that you, you didn't necessarily think that that was the optimal time, but you let me do it. And I'll always remember that. That was cool. And 
I had the pressure of that wine because I said, man, Phil, <laughs> Phil wants to see that wine. <laughs> well, so I want to be able to enjoy it. And I, and I trust you. And, you know, yeah. it, it's you know, the, the, every, every chef has a different is going to be, you know. And, yeah. And the same thing goes with, with, with wine. And, you know, if I thought they were totally underripe, I would have jumped up and down. The, 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 the flavors are there, especially for the prices you have to pay for my fruit. Absolutely, yeah. I agree, man. I agree. We do get, get but I'm looking forward to another year with you. Uh, and uh, hope to see you soon in person. So, Likewise, my friend. Course. I'll reach right. out to you. Well, let's walk it together. Hold on, Phil. Phil before you before you take off can i just ask you quickly since we got you here what what harvest is going to look like being that we're in this COVID stuff like uh well uh, you know harvest is going to be really slow harvesting grapes is a team sport the yeah. harvest itself is a celebration and what it's going to be is it's going to be a lot quieter yeah. Uh, I, I am, I'm picking every grape that I grow into a, to an FYB, uh, a, yellow, a yellow box, and, and they're gonna. Uh, it's a, FYB stands for fucking yellow boxes because they're bare, <laughs> and then we're going to dump those into our harvest containers, our half ton bins. So, it's, it's, the whole process is going to be slower, um, and I, you know we tend to be really exact in everything that we do and we'll maintain that exactness, but it's, uh, we can't take a chance of anybody getting sick and I don't want anybody to get sick under my watch. And my, the the people I work for are the the same. And so we're doing every precaution. Uh, and, um, I'm figuring it's, it's going to be take 50% more time this year to harvest fruit. Um, it's still going to be a celebratory time, but the, celebra- the celebrations are going to be a, 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 little different t- a different time uh, and, and a, in a different way. I, you know, it's, it's something that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I love the harvest, but it's for the last month, all of a sudden, it's all I've been thinking about is how to do it responsibly. And, yep. and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm picking some, uh, doing a small mountain sh- champagne we're harvesting next week. And so it'll be, the, the, that'll be the, the, uh, the, the, the first trial run. I'll, I'll let you know, but it's going to be interesting. But, you know, our employees, our workers are our lifeblood. So we're going to do everything to keep things safe. So, but yep. the fruit, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited. <laughs> you know, I, I am, I am excited. I, I love the, I love the, the what I'm seeing in the vineyard. So, thank you, it. Phil. God, have a have a great podcast. It's great seeing you, Artie. Great uh, seeing uh, you, Phil. Good to see you, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. That was cool, hey, Artie. Have you ever been out to the Rossi Ranch property? You know, I have. Um, I got to walk it several years ago, and. That's and, and it was a great time to walk it too because it was, it was I believe, early September. So everything was was getting ready and, you know, I talked to Phil a while back about working with Rossi, and uh, 
and we talked about it for a couple of years and then finally the opportunity came up for me this year. So, you know, I, my project, and I have to, I have to say this now without the growers and the amazing sites that I get to work with and how much they've believed in me, I wouldn't have a project at this level, especially in five years. Um, the way I was able to develop this 2015 being my first vintage, it's a lot of relationships and a lot of people said, Hey man, this guy, he works hard. He has a wine background. He wants to do things the right way. He's also humble enough to understand, um, you know, what his role is and what our role is. So, you know, it, the growers is the experience and the sites is probably 50 to 60% of my project for sure. Well, and will you, you know, you mentioned obviously the, the Rossi ranch, you mentioned shake Ridge, you mentioned Carol and, and Steve's play, you know, the yeah. Roger Meredith. Um, yeah. will you, talk, you know, those are three just off the top of the bat, you know, pretty yeah. epic sites. I imagine that the other nine are probably in the same category. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the, the, the 12? Yeah, some of them, I, I, I can talk about the areas, but some of them, right. I try to refrain because I don't ever want, um, and you all know this, some of the growth, it's, it can be a sticky situation about, you know, the rights to the, the vineyard names yeah. and things, even though I'm not using them, I like to be courteous, but I can tell you the Appalachians. I mean, when I started this Syrah concept, it was through my love of Domain Jamé. And I read about Jamé and I was blown away when I saw that he works with up to 30 different sites, blends them all together, and then that goes into what the coat Roti is. So I said, it would be a cool project if I could represent the entire state uh, through Syrah and try to lean on some of the great growers and then build those layers of complexity so it would represent the entire state versus a single vineyard. So currently I am in Santa Barbara, Paso Robles, Carmel, Santa Lucia Highlands, Contra Costa County, Sierra Foothills, Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino. Wow, so you are going to have some different pick days. I mean, just starting with Contra Costa. Yeah, my the, the harvest nightmares have already started a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah. I woke, woke up sweating, but uh, I think I think it, it's it's hard if you try to fight it, but if you let it come in as it as it comes, it can be a lot of fun. So I have a board where I put up all the vineyard sites and everything that I have, and then I kind of start moving them around based on what I'm seeing. I'll start visiting around probably in about a week or two weeks. And then one's more advanced than the other, then I'll slide it. And some picks I might be able to bring in at the same time and do some cool co-ferments and things like that. But it's, it's, if you're gonna do that, you, you can't be a control freak. If you are, you'll just, you'll just lose it because you're not, you're not in control. And uh, I think as winemakers, more so than vineyard managers, we always think we're in control but then we realize that we're not in control. But what we're in control of is educating ourselves, working hard, uh, cultivating relationships, running a great business. Those are the things we're in control of. But when I'm gonna pick Rossi, I'm not in control of that. I have to let, let it develop the way I need it to develop for what I'm trying to do. And are, are you allowed to talk about where you're doing the, the uh, crush and where, you're, yes. where you store your wine? Is 
Absolutely, yeah. So that's that's another key component. I, I make my wines at the Wine Foundry, and uh, there's a lot of cool small producers. It's over in downtown Napa, and uh, we all have a good time and we collaborate. And the cool thing about a custom crush facility is you see so much. You see so much fruit coming in. You see so many philosophies. Um, it's very different from what we do um, in our family estate projects where there is more control and, and, um, and just, you know, uh, it's, it's more of a solitude environment versus I love the collaborative uh, environment of the wine foundry. They make their own wines there as well. Um, amazing equipment. You know, I've been on an, on a Polonc optical for the last three years. So, uh, custom crush ha is not, uh, what people think it is. I think it's a really special place. Um, but you, you also can't be a prima donna and, and make wine at a custom crush. You have to understand that you're going to need to be flexible at times and, you know, other people have fruit coming in. And if you look at it that way and you enjoy the process, um, it, it's a very, it's a very uh, special way to make wine for sure. Yeah. Well, wh where we left off is you were, you were at Harlan. Yes. And then how well, Phil rudely interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, it was it was that was amazing to see Phil come in there. Um, yeah. You <laughs> know, I was right in the window. I'm like, oh, you gotta come say hi to Artie. <laughs> no, I appreciate that, man. I and, and Phil reminded me I need to get out and walk Rossi with him. Um, it's a Harlan, it's a great venue. Yeah. And Harlan, it looks really good right now. Oh, I'm sure it always looks good. And you know, my wife and Frederick are getting fruit from out there for their project, Teresa where they're doing uh, Grenache wines and Pinot Noir wines. So I know he'll be out there pretty soon too. Yeah, Frederick's another great, uh, you know, list of, basically anybody who touches the Staglin family, I figure is, uh, is good people, uh, you know, shown by you and, and Frederick is one of my favorite people to get to, you know, interact with and as far as, you know, big time nap winemakers go, that's for sure. Thank you, yeah, he's a, he's a big mentor of mine, I think. What I've taken from him is, uh, you know, he attacks his job with a level of seriousness mm -hmm. and and professionalism that's very high. Uh, you know, Frederick likes to have a good time, and 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 he's a cool dude. But when it comes down to his business, he takes care of his business. So, you know, I talked a little bit about the growers in my project, but the mentors, and uh, you know, I I get to hang with some pretty big time Napa winemakers, right? And they've taught me a lot. And uh, less less about technical things, but more about being a professional. And uh, and Frederick is one of those people that's influenced me for sure. Yeah. All right. So so how do we get from Harlan to? I'm I'm assuming you worked at Mayakamas from from um, yes looking at your at your IG account. Yeah, you know. Um, so at Harlan, I worked on the Promontory project. Uh, before the winery was completed and there was a, a really cool tasting uh, room that we had over by Meadowood. It was a winery and a little room and uh, it was called the Founders Room. We would do tastings of Bond, single, you know, technically I guess they don't, they don't want to be called single vineyard, but the different Bond wines. And then we would do sneak previews of Promontory. Uh, and then some days I would, I would work up at the Harlan property. So it was pretty fun because I got exposed to three projects in different phases. You know, Harlan is so well developed and polished and amazing mailing lists and 
and folks just love that project. And then Bond is a is a very particular um, project in itself, showing the different terroirs of of Napa Valley through a Cabernet Sauvignon project, five to this day, I believe. And then Promontory was this, you know, kind of wild um, property that had amazing terroir, but was being developed. But we were developing the mailing list behind the scenes by showing the wines to folks. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, I just think the timing of when my commerce was purchased and my name came up for a pretty good position. And uh, I kind of wanted to, 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 I wanted to move to a different type of project because Harlan was a very polished project, a polished organization. I wanted to prove that I could build something. And the Mayakamas, you know, brand at the time had a lot of history, but, you know, frankly, the buzz wasn't what it is now. So we had to really get in there and, and kind of see what we had, polish it up and be able to take it to market and get people excited about it. So that was an opportunity that I, that I couldn't pass up. And sometimes when you have the opportunity to work on a completely different project, um, those are skills that, you know, they're, they're, they're very valuable. And I remember when I interviewed up there and, uh, you know, I was a little freaked out because I just left Harlan and, and, and it looks like everyone is cutting the, the grass with, with scissors. And then I went up to, <laughs> I went up to my commas and there, there's probably like, you know, 20 truckloads of old tractors and, garbage that needed to be taken <laughs> off of the property so I said there's no way I'm gonna go I'm gonna work here but by the time I got to the bottom of the mountain I realized like that was the challenge that I needed and I needed to prove to myself and to the rest of the valley that I could help build something and not just come into something that was already established yeah yeah that's that, that's yeah, funny I, mean, I don't think we could emphasize enough how different my I mean, even to this day, it's a really different place and, and you know, experience than Harlan. But, uh, you know, in 2012, 2013, whenever that was, uh, it was about as far apart at Napa <laughs> as you could freaking find. I mean, you have the pinnacle over here of, of Harlan and then way off in like left field, you have what Bob Travers was doing at, at you know, the top of, of Mount Beter. And it's just like, I mean, it's, it is still a, a completely different wine and experience than, than what you expect in Napa. But in those days, it was, you know, as much the top of Cape Dale Road as it was the top of, you know, uh, Dry Creek Road. I mean, it was, it was way out there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, we had some, we had some really fun times uh, up there. And I think we got people excited about it. And, and uh you know, Nathan Little John was the winemaker when I was there, and then he he passed the reins to Braden Albrecht. And you know, I, I spent some time with Braden. I believe it was three or four months ago, and tasted through some barrels. And I'm just so excited about what he's doing, Phil. I mean, I got to watch over 40 acres of mountain vineyard replanted. Wow. Um, I mean, that's that. It, this type of experience is so incredible, and. I love the fact that we're not talking about the wines that I make right now because all of this has more to do with why the wines are the way they are. It's the background, it's the experience, it's the relationships, it's the stuff you see. So you have to put yourself in a position to get great experience. You know, you have to build your career the way you want it to. 
now I have all these experiences and, and just knowledge that's been, that's been given to me by the places I've been. I use all of that to make these wines. So the wines are only a small part of the real story. Um, the story is that I've been fortunate to, to work in some really top-notch organizations and, and understand what it means to put your hard hat on and go to work every single day and try to run a great business and maintain your relationships and, and have fun doing it at the same time. So we had a ton of fun at, at Harlan. I had a ton of fun at My Commas. Um, my wife and I got married in, in, in 2015. So we had two, two children shortly after, Arthur and Cicely in 16 and 17. And I started Layout of Shastik in 15. So now things are starting to get really crowded and busy. I'm working in another organization. I have two children. My wife's working in her family business and I have my business. So over time, we made the decision that I was going to concentrate on Layout of Shastik. And then I was going to come to the family business and, and do some consulting uh, for them in terms of direct-to-consumer strategies. So that's the evolution of, of kind of coming to Napa, you know, working at Harlan, moving to Mayakamas, starting Layard Shasik, and then saying, if this is going to work, I'm going to have to put all of my energy into it. And I got to ask, because I'm sure listeners are wondering the same thing, all of what you're talking about, working with these incredible cab producers working over in Napa, got two kids, got to keep things on track. What the hell are you doing making Syrah? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're, we love Syrah, but, but you know, there's been this 15-year thing of people saying, oh, Syrah is going to be the next thing, but we're still waiting. <laughs> And which is fine because the prices stay a little bit lower so we can drink it. Yeah. I can't, I can't drink Bond wines, but I can drink some really nice Syrahs, but that's an yeah. odd, I think that's an odd choice though. Yeah. You know, I think it, 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 and I would agree with that. I think you have to look at the entire project. And so I started with Rosé and then today I make Rosé, Chardonnay, Syrah and Carignan. So I didn't want to I, didn't, I don't want to make wine in a sector where I feel like I might not be able to make a big impact. Right. You know, the Cabernet thing in Napa, hey, it's going well. People are doing that well. They've been doing it well for a long time. But for me to, make, to be another Cabernet producer, A, I don't think would make a huge impact. And B, I also don't want to compete or distract in any way with our family project. Uh, right. I get my Cabernet fill by working with the family on Staglin Family Vineyard. Uh, Syrah for me is, is, is more about the expression of the variety. I think it's been challenging over the last 15 years because like you said, um, people are waiting for something to happen. And kind of like that old Pinot Noir revolution that happened, like many people shouldn't have been planning it and then it became a glut and then it was hard to move Pinot. But I think with Syrah, we're on the opposite right now because a lot of the inferior vineyards have been torn out the producers that couldn't sell it stopped making it. So now you're left with amazing sites and growers that love Syrah, like Phil, and producers like myself that love to make it. Um, and everybody's cellar can't be full of just Cabernet. And in terms of our family, we drink a lot of different wines. I mean, we love light reds because as a family, we produce Cabernet Sauvignon. So yeah. the style um, of, of those Syrah wines are not big and rich and intense. Uh, but they're not lean either. I like to think more about P 
Pinot Noir um, production when I'm making them. More gentle, um, picking on the earlier side, uh, no new oak, large format barrels. Um, they, they never get racked. You know, they only get racked before bottling. Uh, they stay in barrel for 18, 20 months. So you would imagine that that style is very elegant and, and on the medium to lighter side. So that's something that I think all wine drinkers can enjoy. I don't look at it as the variety. I look at it as what value can this wine bring to someone's life. The variety is really second. Wow. Yeah, and, that's a great and, philosophy. Yeah, for sure. And, and who, who came up with the label design and who does that stuff? Yeah, label design was, was a cool um, opportunity. So my wife uh, knew Richard Von Saul um through uh auction napa valley so we've been very supportive of auction napa valley over the years and uh when they used to have the live lot displays richard would create either staged items or these amazing boxes wood boxes for large format bottles so when i thought about who i wanted to work with to design i liked richard because first of all he he didn't do a lot of wine labels. He was an interiors guy. So I knew that I wouldn't get something that was very cookie cutter because he wouldn't like fall into his normal pattern. The other thing is he likes to use, um, he doesn't like any white space on the label. So you get kind of the, the full real estate there. And then he likes to make odd shaped labels. So I was on board with all of that. It's a long, expensive process, um, but at the time, I didn't realize that whatever you're paying a label designer, X amount of money. At first, it, it seems like the largest amount of money you've ever spent on anything. But over the years, when you think about how many times you print that label or how many times people see that label, there is great value in going to someone that can produce something beautiful for you. So Richard Von Saul uh, at Von Saul Design uh, we worked together and he really nailed it because this is a, this is a, a label that if we didn't get it right, it would look awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You are kind of straddling that line. It's yeah. It's, it, it could be really cartoony and silly looking, or it could be beautiful. Right. So we wanted, we, we wanted it to have some heritage feel to it. Um, so it's a take on a family crest You'll see my initial at the top, the A, and then my wife's initial below that, and the S. You'll see three cherubs on the side. That's my wife and my two children. Um, I changed the foils and the colors with the moods of the wines. So the Syrahs are, are dark blacks and grays and red foils. Uh, my Chardonnay has this beautiful kind of like uh, light browns and dark greens and gold. And then you, you get into the rosé where you've got like the purples and, and with that light pink wine, it's so beautiful. And then I got kind of my sinister bottle, which is my Carignan. It's got a lot of the like rose gold and, 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 uh, and red. And that one the most looks like a shield. So I have fun with that part. Uh, yeah, it looks very royal. Thank you, yeah. Yeah. I have fun, I have fun with it, you know. Most of, most of your business... Um, you know, it's probably 90% running the business, right? 5% winemaking and 5%, you know, the fun stuff like packaging. So if you're not having fun making wine and you're not having fun packaging, please don't start your own brand because yeah. the other time. 
the other 90% is devastating. <laughs> it's true. I remember making beer for the first time and, you know, it was fun making the beer, but the most fun thing was coming up with the labels for my own homebrew and put, you know, the, coming up with the names and coming up with the labels was, was definitely the, the funnest thing about the whole project. S Sam, what are you drinking? Uh, so I have the, I, I, I probably skipped a few steps by going rosé straight to the, to the 17 Bart Park Syrah. I, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I Maybe I'll wait for you to be around and we'll we'll pour in the Chardonnay together, Brian. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna stick the needle into uh, the Carignan next because that I mean this label, yeah. I, I gotta get I gotta get in there. Tell us tell us how you what's your perception of the wine so far and what you're drinking. Uh, I think it's better for for you to to talk about that than me. You know what you, and more yeah. more about what what you feel coming off of the project. Um, I mean, you know, I, I love the vibe of the whole project. Um, I, I love the balance of that for me, but the, the, the label and the bottle shape, it does really strike this, um, this balance between, between really regal and really serious, but also it had like, you can't look at these and not smile. It has this like really playful kind of, uh, of, of feeling to it, which I mean, I think, you know, you embody as well, Artie. Um, Thank you. Started, starting with the, with the rosé, um, 18 from Shake Ridge. Again, you know, it's a, a great vineyard site. The rosé is it's got great balance, good fruit. Um, you know, the, the acidity is is just like spot on. Um, you know, you, I, you know, obviously, you've probably all tasted a lot of different expressions of Shake Ridge. Um, yes. But it definitely is of of that property. Um, and then the Bark Park. You know, we, we made some Bart Park Syrah in the same year. We probably picked it after you, but I, as soon as you said Jamay, I really wanted to jump in there and just be like, all right, well, that's where he's coming from with his, with his Syrah, and that's about as good a place as you can come from with Syrah, uh, and, and it's great. Um, it's, it's also of, you know, the Sonoma Valley, um, yeah. and in the, that, that Bart Park is sort of quintessentially Sonoma Valley, um, yeah, so I'm excited to see you know kind of what you uh, how you interpret the Rossi Ranch and, and express that also. Uh, you know, definitely these wines are, are of the places that they're grown, and for me, that's should be the goal of any winemaker putting a vineyard name on a on a bottle for sure. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a massive compliment, and I appreciate that because the reason I work with different sites all over the state is to be able to have the freedom to search for where that variety expresses itself in an amazing way. And one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten was from Pax. And Pax told me one time, he said, don't ever ask a vineyard to do something for you that it can't do. And, right. you know, I go out to the coast and I make Sonoma Coast style uh, Chardonnay. Here in Rutherford, we at Stagland, we make Rutherford style estate Chardonnay. And I think if you can show place and you can line up behind that, um, I think for me, that's the real journey is to make site driven, vintage specific wines. And you're gonna find people that enjoy that expression. 
uh, I don't think it makes it right or wrong. You know, we have, there's plenty of beautiful stylistic wines that I enjoy drinking, but this project is really about vintage and place and the relationships that took me to those places, whether it's Ann Kramer at Shake Ridge or Phil Katuri, you know, at Bart Park or, you know, the Columbinis uh, uh, for Carignan, I mean, it, or Stephen Carroll at La Gerberdeth, you know, I really know all these people, right? Like, uh, you know, if you don't really want to buy fruit from someone that doesn't uh, want you to have dinner at their house, then you don't want them to have dinner at your house. That's kind of the rule for me. Like, if we can't break bread in that way, then I'm not so sure we should really be doing business together in either way. That relationship has to be that strong because then you'll get these strong expressions that you're getting out of these wines right here. And but tell me about the Carignan I'm about. Yeah. This is obviously a, a vineyard site that I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I know Shake Ridge, I know Bart Park, Rossi Ranch, whatever, but um, yeah, talk about this a little bit. Yeah, Vincenzo is an amazing site. So this, I made this one year, and then since the Carignan source has moved to Columbini, uh, more because that was a that was a relationship of a friend of mine. So this is a very unique wine because I made this with my buddy Aaron Bon Cristiani. So if you think about this project was started in 2015. So 15 Shake Ridge uh, GSM and 15 Vincenzo Vineyard Carignan. Those were the first wines that I ever made. Um, so old vines, 70 year old Carignan. Mendocino gets those amazing like cold nights um, you know you can hang it forever right you probably got a lot of disease up there you can hang it forever uh, but you have to be really careful because last last year we had a late season frost up there so we're rolling right along just kind of getting that beautiful last little bit that that the old vines can give and then late season frost hits we drive up there and this is kind of a funny story. I've never seen like what frost does, you know? And so I'm looking around and I'm, I'm telling my wife, like, I don't remember seeing this much disease out here as we're driving up through Ukiah and everything. And she's like, that's not disease, that's frost. Wait, so <laughs> what, what does that look like? I mean, the leaves are like red. They're like crunchy. Basically, if you touch them, they'll just evaporate into powder. So wow. what happened was that I had a pick called on it, but the frost came. So I was able to get out because the frost was, I mean, uh, the canopy's deteriorated, right? The leaves have frozen. They're going to fall off. So you're going to be totally exposed to the day sun. So you're going to start getting sunburn and you're going to get dehydration. But I had a pick call because Darren Columbini, I was going to the, the uh, Wine Spectator Experience in New York. And I said, you know what? Weather looks awesome. Let's let it ride and I'll pick when I get back from New York. And he looked at me and he had this look on his face like, man, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's do it before I leave. And right when we made that decision, had the pick called, had the crew, the frost hit, and I was able to get off the vine. Unfortunately, a lot of people weren't able to get off because they couldn't scramble the crews in time. So you have to be careful uh, being greedy uh, up in Mendocino County with old vibes hanging too long. 
because we all know now the next thing you have to worry about hanging too late are the fires. So between fires and frost, get the fruit off the vine, don't be greedy. That's what I learned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, to think about battling and, and contending with the dueling influences of fire and ice is a is <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. is like <laughs> a, a concise and and you know three word description of life in the wine business that you could ever <laughs> come up with <laughs> sam fun. did you do you have that do you have that carignan in your glass yeah i i, I love the carignan I, i'm actually you know truth be told it's it's not always my favorite variety and this might be my favorite expression of it I've had in a really long time. And why, Sam? Why is it? Uh... Um, why is it not? Yeah. Because I, I think that people, um, A, they don't know what to do with it. It's, it's not the easiest thing to farm well. Um, it, it's, you know, it has some, some disease pressure susceptibility that um, I, I think people overlook. Um, and, you know, so that it's, it has its challenges. Um, you know, this tastes really like well-grown, clean fruit. Um, yes. and that's, and that's like the most important thing with Carignan. Um, it has this, this brooding characteristic to it. Um, it's, it's just enough rustic, um, to, you know, know where you're at and what you're drinking. Um, but I, and I think maybe if you hadn't described what you'd put into the label, and as like describing the mood of the wine, I wouldn't have gone there immediately, but um, so maybe there's a little power of suggestion there, but it is, um, it's just like, it's so well balanced, but it's, but it's big and, and dark and rustic um, and just like, yeah, it's delicious. Thank you. I don't, I don't think I spit it out. I think I might have forgotten to spit it when I tasted it, which is a Yeah, <laughs> you know, Carignan, it can be, um, you know, high acid, high tannin, right? So high acid, high tannin, disease pressure, late ripening. Um, you know, you got to get, you, you got to get those tannins uh, ripe, you know, it's, that's the one. Elegant. They're elegant tannins, Artie. Thank I think you. that's the thing that I'm like, just loving about it is the balance between the rustic and, and sort of meaty, broody side and, and this, this sort of elegant finish that it has. Um, yeah, well, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, you also got to get, uh, I've learned that you have to be a little bit more gentle with it during the winemaking process um, because it's got some, it's got some tannins, you know, and yeah. just because, just because you get the tannins ripe doesn't mean you can be uh, overly physical with it. Um, there's enough tannin to go around there. You know, it's kind of like the opposite of, you know, Pinot Noir production where you get in and get out and you're trying to extract because the, the, the fermentation just flies through um i've i've over the last several years i've become more gentle in terms of syrah and also carignan because i'm i'm more aware that I, i'm gonna have enough tannin <laughs> so uh, i don't want to coax more of that during fermentation sam do no, you think that you think uh, um do you think that that's why a lot of people do a carbonic on the carignan because they just don't know what to do with it 100 percent hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think people are afraid of those tannins. They're afraid of the, of the acidity in a way that, um, you know, you want to get the juiciness out of there and, and this has it, it's, it's, um, you know, the, the backbone is the tannin and the structure and that sort of like rustic edge to it, but it has this juiciness. And I think that when you, when you balance that, 
um, the end result is a little bit of an elegant, is, is that elegance. Um, and, but 100%, that's why people do carbonic with, with Carignan is to, to not extract too much out of it. Uh, but, you know, tannin isn't always a bad thing. Tannin is what, um, you know, a tannin in a city is what makes you want to have another sip. So yep. you got to have it in, you know, you got to have it in the right dose um, for sure. Dose yeah, your acid correctly. That's the lesson here. Yeah, every every wine that I make, uh, you know, it has acidity. It has it has structure. There's tannins are are uh, are present for sure. Um, so a lot of them aren't just kind of like porch wines, you know, like sit out there and let me have a glass of red wine. I think they're made to integrate with food, um, and so I try to encourage my clients a lot of times to enjoy the wines in the right uh perspective because then i think they will really enjoy them more um and also i think ageability is a big thing you know i've the thing that is probably the most challenging at this point in my career is you know my wines aren't that old you know i can't sit around like we do in our family business and taste 20 year old and 30 year old cabernets and see how far i've come so i'm still learning the evolution of the wines because I'm evolving with them as a winemaker. So I look forward to the day where I can say, wow, this is, you know, this is a, a 10 year old wine that I made or 15 year old wine. So I think that's the patience of starting a project. And I, I, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer, I think, uh, you know, starting winemaking late. Uh, but I think the, the students and people that intern and harvest and all that, that started in an earlier uh, age, I think that's the advantage that you start you know, in your 40s, where I'm at, you've already, you know, you've seen wines that are 10, 15 years old that you've made already. Yeah, you can, uh, you can imagine um, that that makes me think of Braden, start starting, uh, you know, Braden getting the winemaker position at Maya Kamas at like, how, how old is he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was 20. I mean, he was maybe 30 when he got the winemaking position at Maya Kamas. But yeah, the thing about you know, Maya Kamas, and, and to Braden's credit, and, and Nathan Littlejohn was on the same path, and, and, and interestingly, you know, guided by Andy, Andy Erickson, is they've, you know, Mike Thomas had this giant library of, and yeah. not only the wines, but also these notes that, that Bob Travers kept on, on what, you know, each vintage and each season, and they've been able to sort of extrapolate that and parlay that into um, keeping stylistically true to the to the wine to the brand in a way that you know I, I don't know of any other sort of like major sale of a heritage brand like that where they've done the same thing you know keeping stylistically true to, to the wines that they're making there so that's a, I mean that's the thing where you know so even if Braden hasn't made a huge backlog of his own wines he can still visit you know Maya Thomas and, and know exactly how he can kind of continue on that path. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think now that I'm outside of the project and have been outside of the project for a little while now, you know, I, I think this, the new organization really needs to feel confident putting their own spin on what's going on. And they did that initially with getting Phil to replant the vineyard. There's not a better person you could have picked for that. Uh, Andy, uh, coming in and grooming uh, Braden and Nathan was spectacular. 
uh, we had a strong sales and marketing team. And so now I think the story that I want to hear coming out of there is, is what's going to happen in the future. I think okay. we've talked a lot, a lot about the past and a lot about the historic wines and, you know, and everybody wants to upload to Instagram, you know, 78, 82, uh, you know, 85 and, and my commas, but I want to start seeing people upload some of these wines that, that Braden has made. And, and uh, I was super excited to see the press from the spectator where they got number two wine in the world, because one of my goals when I went there was to get clients to start thinking about present and future Mayakamas and less about the past. And a business runs on selling current vintage wine. And we weren't going to be sustainable burning through the library and marketing about old wine. We really needed to get people excited about new wine. And I see that turn now. And I feel like, like, like maybe I was able to contribute in a, in a, in a special way there. And hands down, one of my favorite well, Chardonnays. Yeah, the, the 18 Chardonnay is, is banging. But yep. can, we, can we parlay wine on Instagram to something that I, I want to ask you at, about? And not only out of jealousy, but there is a little ping of jealousy <laughs> in this conversation, is the connection and, and between uh, the like wine in the NBA world and, and how Mayakamas fit into that and the fact that my freaking father on the day that the entire Cavs team was at Mayakamas and was invited to bring 16600. Everybody else was pouring their personal labels and he didn't bring 16600. So I'm not mad, but I'm still mad. <laughs> um, can we talk about that a little bit and, and you know, just like how the, the wine culture in the NBA has, has maybe spread wine in a way around the country that, um, you know, speaking of wine on Instagram, you know, when a wine shows up on LeBron's Instagram, it's like a way bigger deal than just about anything else. Talk about wine influencers. Um, it, yeah. You know, what's that like? How did that happen? You know, talk about that for a second. It's pretty cool. So the Cavs, the Cavs visit was through the relationship of the Schottenstein family. So uh, they are, they're very prominent in Ohio. Uh, they're big Ohio state uh, boosters and have great ties up there. So uh, Joey Schottenstein uh, is friends with, you know, uh, people in, in, LeBron's camp and that kind of thing. And they said, come on up. It was post fires. Uh, so we didn't really have a lot to work with. We had to rent a bunch of stuff. It was very challenging to pull off. Uh, but everybody came and they were super excited about learning. And I think being at the vineyard and going to wine country, like going to see the vineyards, going to talk to the winemakers that that's important. Like, Everyone has to do that if you really want to fall in love with wine. I mean, I, I did it in my career. It the amount of money that I spent versus my net worth at the time was, was, was pretty, probably, probably not advised. Um, but I had to go see, you know, these sites. I had to speak with the winemakers. And I think what you're seeing with the NBA is these guys aren't just buying bottles of wine off wine list anymore. They're actually going to the wine country and they're feeding their knowledge. So there's an explosion of understanding that there's a lot of people behind these wines. There's sites behind these wines. So that's what the explosion is. These guys could always afford, you know, expensive wine and go to restaurants and 
but you don't have a connection with wine that way, you know. And Joey Schottenstein, one thing I'll say is is a massive collector, and uh, and and really uh, allowed us to enjoy wines from his collection. So, you know, I fell in love with Rhone wines because I drank through, you know, some of the most amazing wines in the world that I could have never afforded. So. I think it's just the generosity in this business and understanding that's catching in the NBA now. And, and those guys, they've been traveling to Italy. You know, when my wife and I, we were just at Sasakaya last year and, and they're like, Oh, do you know Jimmy Butler? And I said, you know, not personally, no, but they said, Oh, he was just here last week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so he's pretty young too. Like to be into, into wine. You don't typically think of the younger the younger generation uh, visiting yeah. someplace like Sasakaya. Yo, he's a massive, he's a massive collector and amazingly knowledgeable guy. I mean, you know, you look at those guys that hang out together and LeBron and, and Melo and D Wade and Chris Paul and all, you know, there's a host of other, other guys that, you know, we're fortunate to have uh, not just, you know, NBA players on our list, but, you know, NHL, PGA, um, NFL, it's just it's cool to show them what we do because there was a time when I could hit a baseball and uh, I'm gonna leave that to my to my son now you know but uh we get to share what we do with them and when they came up to my commas I think they admired what we what we were doing as much as we admired what they do professionally well everybody wants to be a winemaker right when you when you get out in the <laughs> middle of a vineyard and it's just like working in a tasting room. You know, I worked in the tasting room and, and you know, the, there's a lot of romance that goes along with, with the wine industry. And it's not until you actually get behind the scenes to where you see there's actually 90% of it is a lot of work that goes on. But, but from the outside, it just looks like a really cool lifestyle. For sure. You know, and I think it's our job to make it look that way. You know, if, 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 if we don't look like we're having fun, we're not doing it right. But, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak to, you know, some young people recently. And, and, and of course, now that the awareness of, of, of people of color uh, uh, enjoying consuming wines and also trying to get into the business in a more prevalent way, I like to really uh, keep it straightforward with people about what running one of these businesses is about. You know, it's going to take you seven to 10 years uh, to be cash flow positive. Yeah. And, and what that means is a constant kind of awareness of of the finances right so making the wine uh creating labels walking vineyards all of that stuff is really amazing and tactile but it all comes down to receivables payables and cash flow yeah. and if it weren't for the clients that i have supporting what i do uh, then i would not be able to sell this part and it's just like art you could put a bunch of paintings in a room and you could line up a bunch of people and some people are going to like that one. Some people are going to like this one, but what they should be able to recognize is that some skill level went into that painting. So what I really try to do is continue to increase my skill level as a winemaker, as a businessman, also as a family man, because keeping uh, all of that straight um, is, is important to be able to do these other things too. So I've had to, really work on my balance uh, in life and also awareness of what's important. You know, uh, the financial side of the business is important every single day. 
365 days. Walking vineyards is not as important 365 days for me because I'm not a viticulturalist. So I have to understand what I need to do to be successful and then try to either outsource or lean on other people to help me in areas where I may not have as much time to spend. And let's just get it out there. How do people get a hold of your wine? You know, there's, there's two ways. So my, most of my wine is sold uh, direct to consumer. And, you know, I don't love saying that because I, I, when I hear people say that, it's, it's for two reasons, right? It's like, oh, because the margins are higher. Or it's like, oh, my wine is so special. that It's more about, like, the lifestyle that I want to live. You know, I have two small children, so I'm not going to fly around and ride with distributors and leave my family and do all that stuff that's required to be successful in the wholesale market. Um, I do meet a lot of clients, and I've met a lot of clients over the years, and one of my skill sets is direct-to-consumer strategies. I've consulted in the Valley for several uh, different organizations, including uh, Fabia and Hudson and now Stagland. So I really get that side of the business. So I'm leaning on something that I feel good about and that I'm strong with. So most of the wine is direct to consumer. So clients that contact me either through Instagram, which is at winexyz, or they email me, which is winexyz at gmail.com. But I do like supporting the local restaurants. So I have wines at uh, at Meadowood, Auberge, French Laundry, Bouchon, um, Morimoto, uh, Cadet. Uh, so I like to keep the wines local um, in terms of the restaurants, more like a Burgundian kind of concept. But then I, I basically move most of the wine direct to consumer. And and I got to ask, how did you get and a hold you, of all- The wines that you dropped off, the samples you dropped off, available? Yeah. yeah, everything is available that I dropped off. You know, Rosé, Chardonnay, Syrah, and Carignan. That's what I make. Uh, sometimes I have certain single vineyards that are very small production. Most of these wines are anywhere from 100 to 200 cases. So that's the other reason why it's mostly direct consumer because, you know, I'm like an ant compared to some of the, some of the big brands. So even if, if a distributor got involved with me, I wouldn't even have enough cases available to make it worth their while. So I'm working with mostly one and two ton lots, anywhere from 50 to 150 cases. And how do I get one of those three liter bottles of rosé? <laughs> Man, that's, you know, the cool thing about that is funny. So when I moved out here and I started making the rosé, I came from Miami, you know, I'm like, oh, the Miami culture, you know, I'm going to make all these like magnums in three liters. Right. <laughs> that is definitely not a West Coast culture, you know, so I've, I've toned down the large format um, production for the rosés, but I do still make some mags and some three liters, uh, you know, for special occasions and certain clients, but I'd love to get one your way, man. They're uh, so fun. Yeah, I, I once you pour out of a Magnum, it's, it's fun to, to go around the room. I remember we used to do um, Grenache Day at the Girl in the Fig, and, and sometimes I'd, I'd have a just have magnums and be walking around pouring for people, just pouring ganache. And it, it's, it's a weird perspective. Once you get used to pouring out of a magnum, those, those 750s look really small. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wine tastes wine taste the best out of a magnum. I don't care what, 
what the variety is, what the what the style is. Magnum is absolutely the best way. To, and I'm not just saying this because I have some Magnums to sell. But yeah, Magnums you do. is definitely, <laughs> definitely the most delicious way to drink. <laughs> you know, you might you might need to Corbin Magnums in you know shelter in place isolation like I was doing uh, at the beginning there. But you know, Magnums is the way. But Magnums uh, three liters of rosé I think is brilliant because that thing's going to get finished. You open up a three liter of a cab, there's a possibility if it's just you and you know your friends that there might be a little bit left the next day, but rosé, that's that thing's gonna be gone. Yeah, if, if, if I have any advice for, for any rosé uh, producers, 750s and three liters are good production. Magnums, I just haven't had a lot of success with, you know, because yeah. I, think, I think people gravitate towards one or the other. Like we all, we all know who that three liter client is. <laughs> yep. yep. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. And and I will say too, I I have to. Uh, there's a caveat on that. Is you know, if you're at a certain pricing, the Magnum kind of falls through. But I think if you're at lower pricing, the Magnum works out. Yeah. I price my rosé magnums slightly less than two bottles of rosé. I think that's the that's the key to it all. It's the you know, weirdest that, thing I've ever seen. Normally, magnums are a little bit more than twice the price of the 750. Sam prices them a little bit less than twice the price. So it's an easy sell. I like to tell people, there's no, yeah. why are you buying a 750? If you have a couple friends, this is the way to go. Yeah, see Sam, he, he understands cash flow. He wants to make money. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's <Well>, smart. <laughs> I, I've, I've never heard that said about cost. Sam before. <laughs> <laughs> Sam. I definitely know how to flow cash out. Yeah, that's yeah. The part that I really <laughs> Sam doesn't want a museum of wine. He doesn't want that. He wants the wine gone. Yep. Well, that's the that's the real business. And I know of how wine. much farming costs as well. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, hey, already very nice to meet you. Hopefully, we'll get to meet uh, sometime in person. Yes. But uh, but I have enjoyed the rosé. Um, I'll post uh, some some pictures up. Um, uh, on the winemakers pod Instagram of uh, some of the bottles. Thank you. And Sam, Sam, I'll get over to you. And um, so I can try some of those wines too. And I was thinking yeah, the wines are delicious. Artie. I almost Thank made you. it yesterday, but I was thinking 10 AM man. You know, well, Artie, you know how it is. Sam, you too. Professional tasting. Sometimes, you know, you got to do it in the morning and it's, it, you know, it's, it's fine. Most of you're spitting, but I want to drink your wine. I don't want to spit your wine. So, Thank you, my friend. I'd love to. I'd love to say to both of you, I appreciate the time that 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 uh, you took today, and uh, and the relationships over time, and uh, for small production winemakers, small guys like me, th this is an honor. You know, I don't take these kind of things for granted because I remember when I didn't make wine, and now you know I'm making some great wines and and sharing them with people, and and you all giving me a cool platform like this to talk about. Uh, what I'm doing. I really appreciate that. Anything I can do for you all, please let me know. And then I'll work on getting you guys one of those three liters too. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your time, Artie. And you know, this is one of our favorite things to do with this show is to turn people on to really good wine that they that they don't normally have access to or know about. So thank you. Thank you, my friends. Be safe. And spend an hour talking about everything but the wine. That's <laughs> a classic right. winemaker. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> hey, be safe out there. Happy harvest. All right. All right. That's right. Thanks, Happy harvest.
All right, you guys, you can check out past episodes of uh, The Winemakers. Uh, go to radiomisfits.com. Hopefully you enjoyed last week's show. Um, that was kind of like chewing bubble gum. There was no uh, real um, nutritional value to it, but we did have a lot of fun talking about Cameron Diaz and her um, clean wines. That was that was a perfect COVID show for me, Sam. It was just – just We need just, those every once in a while, Brian. We need those every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, it was. All right, you guys, take care. I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, my Thanks friend. Thanks again, Eddie.